Hey, hi, hello, y'all. This is RB, and welcome back. Let's talk about 2021, shall we? If you're anything like me, your concept of linear time has been busted since we got ushered into shutdowns back in March 2020. So let me offer a little recap, just as a reminder. The start of this year looked like it came straight out of an Octavia Butler book. Every single Wednesday in January offered a new national headline, starting with the January 6th insurrection, followed the next week by the articles of impeachment being put forward against the outgoing president, followed the next week by the inauguration of the incoming president, and finishing off in the final week of January with GameStop lovers shocking the stock market to the chagrin of capitalists everywhere. And that's just the first four weeks of 2021. From there, we got vaccinations and the anti-vax propaganda. We got the Montero album and the anti-black, anti-queer commentary no one asked for. We added Jojo Siwa, the potato head, and Gonzo to the queer family tree. We crossed our fingers that the billionaires who jettisoned themselves into space stayed there, and we snapped, squealed, and lamented during the series finale of Pose. What a year it's been, but, before we slip 2021 into the archive and tiptoe cautiously into 2022, our team is reflecting on what has brought us joy and what has taught us the greatest lessons this year in a two-part series of Small Bites. In part one, we talk about queer animation, grief and learning through loss, and building a relationship with wilderness in the gay outdoors. Enjoy these snippets of insight, nerding out, nostalgia, and candor for this special episode of Take the Last Bite. Y'all, we cannot do this. We cannot be these stereotypical Midwesterners. Please eat the rest of this food. We just have these conversations every day with people. Like, this is exhausting. I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> Why can't we be in space with hundreds of other queer and trans folks and having these necessary conversations? I don't know who you are, but <laughs> we're going to talk by the potatoes for five minutes. Because aesthetic is the only thing keeping my dysphoria at bay. Yeah, I'm broke all the time, but I look amazing. Definitely going to talk about Midwest nice. And if that's, if that's um, as real as it wants to think it is. Midwest nice is white aggression. That's what it is. In our first small bite, I chat with our director of technology and resident nerd, Andy Newhouse, about some TV shows that have made them particularly happy this year. All right, fam. So let's get into it. We hung out in person a couple times in the past few months. I came to your place when we were doing some retreat stuff with the full team. Mm -hmm. um, and then we were together again in October for the conference. And both times, right, you took master control of the remote and decided what we were watching, which was fine. But you made some very particular choices because um, there were two shows in particular that uh, we're going to get into that you wanted to talk about that were part of your immediate response when thinking mm -hmm. about what brought you joy or what really like made you smile during um, <laughs> the past year. So what, uh, what were those shows that you made sure that everybody uh, was watching while we were spending time together? Uh, the shows were She-Ra, The Princess uh, Power and Owl House. Um, 
Shira is on Netflix and it's a collab between Netflix and DreamWorks and DreamWorks has been killing it recently with like just really awesome animation and shows and then the other one is Owl House which is on Disney Plus and the reason why I was so adamant that we all had to watch them is because it had they both have pretty awesome queer representation it's really cool as an adult remembering watching cartoons and animation as a kid and not having any mm-hmm. queer representation even obliquely whereas like now it's not only in front of your face but it's canon and mm-hmm. um do you want to talk a little bit about each of the sh- like some of the a little bit of the premise of each of those shows mm-hmm. right and then we can get into yeah. like the nitty-gritty of the characters and what exactly that queer representation looks like so Shira is a remake of an 80s live action show mm-hmm. that apparently is super campy and I've never watched no, I haven't either. but <laughs> it basically in the first episode you're dropped into this world where the main character Adora is learning to battle against princesses and she's fighting for the horde because she's an orphan and that's where she's just like grown up her whole life and your fight and the princesses are violent instigators as she's taught and then as you go through you learn oh wait you know this the evil horde has been lying to you the whole time and they actually stink and (laughs) they're trying to take over this planet and so she allies herself with the princesses and then finds a sword and the sword turns her into she-ra which is this mythical princess from thousands of years ago it's like there's this whole like 20 second transformation sequence which is very anime-esque very like uh sailor moon vibes yeah so that's the premise of she-ra it's like fighting against the evil horde with a bunch of princesses and like on the whole when I first heard about this show I was like I'm not gonna like this because I'm not super into princesses <laughs> at all mm-hmm. and I like pink and flowery and no, no thank you but after watching an episode I was like actually this is good and I like it and we're gonna keep watching it my wife and I watched the whole thing in probably a week the other one Owl House um Luz Nocera gets in trouble at school because she's too weird and her mom (laughs) wants to send her to a reality check camp which has some other vibes but whatever um anyway but instead of going to the summer camp she accidentally falls into this world of demons and runs into her to-be mentor Ida the Owl Lady and her companion King, who's basically a Cubone dog mix. <laughs> <laughs> and like Luce's ambition in the human world was to be a witch. And now she's dropped into a demon realm where being a witch is a reality. And so she mm. has to learn how to do magic, even though she like isn't a biological witch, but learns how to do magic anyway. And it's just her and her friends' adventures in the Boiling Isles. And it's 
pretty cute and exactly what I would have loved to watch as a 12 year old 10 12 year old mm-hmm. watching Disney Channel mm-hmm. instead of like Lizzie McGuire <laughs> <laughs> let's let's tuck into that a bit more right so like it, you brought up now twice that like the appeal of these shows that you you're so hype about is that like this was not content um mm-hmm. that you recall encountering or that you believe existed when you were 12 um mm-hmm. so so it sounds like maybe there's a level of like re- reclamation of childhood <laughs> in mm-hmm. being able to be how old you are now and watching these shows what else like what specifically about like these shows would do you think is like so appealing right like you you know you said like with mm-hmm. she not something you probably would have clicked yeah. on just based on our traditional conceptions of what a princess is and then yeah. yet you loved it like what it like <laughs> was it storyline was it truly like I mean there's plenty of you know, there's plenty of content right books mm-hmm. media otherwise with queer content but like what is it about maybe some of these characters in either of these shows that were like wow like this is really this made me binge this in a week with Shira, like a it was cool to see princesses but not in like the Disney kind of princesses looking for a husband. Mm. Like, I, like, yes, there is a queer relationship. So like the, the major antagonist in She-Ra is Adora's childhood friend, Katra. And so like the entire series, there is, I would say, like t- sexual tension between mm. them. Of, like, there is clearly, like, an attraction that is beyond just, like, friendship and kinship of, like, growing up together. Mm. But, like, you don't really see that relationship become a thing until the end. Not the last episode, like, a lot of other stuff, but, like, four episodes from the end. But, like, also, it's just undeniably queer it just like gives off queer vibes from the beginning where there's like rainbows everywhere and like the characters are you know actually good friends and actually communicate as well as like teenagers can and I don't know it I think the like undeniable queer vibes as well as like knowing there was going to be a queer relationship at the end and it was a pretty apparent attraction from the beginning it was just cool. And also like fighting robots and martial arts sequences with like swords and magic and stuff. That is way up my alley. And I right. love so that helps, kind of stuff. It helps that you're just a nerd. So yes. like, <laughs> <laughs> yes, it just helps that I am a nerd. It helps that you're a nerd. And then it's a bonus that it happens to be very queer content. <laughs> yes. Owl House, at first I was honestly skeptical of like, we got a recommendation from a friend to watch it. but we watched one episode and I was like, I don't know, maybe. And we watched the second episode. And I think what really drew me into Owl House was that like, I could see a lot of myself in the main character. It is canon that the main character is neurodivergent, which is super cool to like see like neurodivergent characters, like not necessarily explicitly named, but it was something that the creator said that this is a thing. Um, And also, like, uh, the cast of characters are just really endearing and cute and silly. And I just, coming from She-Ra, which is more of a serious vibe, 
to Owl House, which is more of a, I mean, it's for Disney Channel. It's got a Disney Channel vibe of fun and silliness and like has some serious moments and, but also has like really great character development and that apparently that's the end of that thought. (laughs) (laughs) What I feel like I'm hearing is that with both of these shows, you didn't necessarily have to like work very hard mentally to necessarily read the queerness because Mm -hmm. it's actually there right yeah when we when we talk about you know it being canon right like that that it's actual like it's an Mm -hmm. actual thing we're not you know I think queer folks oftentimes experience this this societal gaslighting if you will where Mm -hmm. it's like why are you trying to make everything queer like why are you trying to like twist this or warp this um and in this situation right you're able to watch something that's comedic it's quirky it's cute it's animated it's kid friendly Mm -hmm. and it's queer without you kind of having to do these mental gymnastics to want it to be queer because it's not baiting us Mm -hmm. right it's it's actually Mm -hmm. there Granted, like I got on the Owl House train long after it premiered. It premiered in early 2020. And we're currently, as of this recording, waiting for the second half of the second season. Mm -hmm. But to me, it's amazing to see in Owl House, and I guess this is spoilers, but if you've been on the internet, it's not. To see a queer relationship between Luce, the main character, and Amity, a supporting character friend, they cement their relationship as girlfriends midway through this, like, beginning of the second season, Mm -hmm. rather than it being at the end of the series, like, in She-Ra's case, four episodes before the end, Mm -hmm. that, like, they admit that they're pretty much attracted to each other, but they don't actually, like, cement their relationship in any substantial way until the last episode. Mm -hmm. Or The Legend of Korra, where, like, Nickelodeon at the time wouldn't allow the creators to let girls kiss Mm -hmm. in the show. So the last scene is... Asami and Korra looking at each other's eyes and walking into the spirit realm. It wasn't until a tweet after the fact that the creators were like, yes, that they were together. This was what this was supposed (laughs) to be. And so like, that is what like, I'm kind of used to. So like, it is so cool to see a like cemented note. This is legitimately a relationship. They are cute and they hold hands and it's also like in the case of the owl house it's not like okay they're together and that's that they're like shy about it and it just really brings up those queer or even like your first crush it Mm. doesn't matter what the gender or if you're gay or queer or whatever like it just brings back those memories of your first crush so cute it is so queer and just fills you with warm fuzzies and mm-hmm. I'm sorry what in this world do we need more than warm fuzzies because this world kind of sucks right now and I don't know the escapism of going to the demon realm of the boiling isles and watching Luce learn magic while like hanging out with her like friends going to magic school without a turfy creator and (laughs) (laughs) yeah I mean because the creator of the owl house is queer she's bi um there is a non-binary character in owl house 
which is also played by a non-binary actor. There's a non-binary character in She-Ra, which is played by a non-binary actor. And it's just like all of the queers, all of the time. This is awesome. The elephant in the room is that Owl House is being canceled by Disney. Some speculate that it's like because it's so queer, but really I think it's more because Disney has decided that it is too mature for their target audience on Disney Channel. The undeniable trend is that content, and especially animation, is getting queerer over time. Mm -hmm. It's getting more POC over time, both in character representation and actors and actresses playing those characters. Mm -hmm. So like Owl House getting canceled is not my favorite thing, but also like the fact that Owl House exists at all is awesome that Disney picked it up in the first place. Um, it's been especially awesome to see like more POC representation. It's not just like your token best friend is POC. Like the main characters are POC, or like and not all the villain, their... not they're not playing the villain. I think that's yeah, a, that's they're a not big playing the... for decades of of yes. animated shows, especially out of Disney. Is that why are all the villains queer coded yes. and POC? Yeah. So yeah, it's really nice seeing like. Okay, She-Ra, the main character, is white, but her two best friends are POC. In Owl House, the main character is um, Dominican. Her friends are POC. I don't know. It's just instead of there being one person that's POC, it is a plethora of people. And Mm. it's like, is this the end? No. But is it progress? I would say so. Right. And it, it just seems it seems like both the content that's being put forward and what's happening behind the scenes, right? Like the deliberate choices, the character mm-hmm. development, who's in the room, who's doing the voice acting, a lot of that seems to have been shifting and changing um, yeah. for the better to provide you with something worth watching when you're mm-hmm. scrolling through your streaming service to click on something Um that's going to satisfy your nerdy desire to watch animated Mm -hmm. shows so yeah what uh so you're waiting for part two of owl house correct um what without maybe any more spoilers about what's already (laughs) taken place but knowing knowing what's already taken place and what is yet to come what are you hoping for out of part two that will make you very satisfied with the conclusion i'm not super sure But I would love to see uh, Luce's mom, like, um, kind of accept her for Mm. being weird and being quirky, as well as being queer. Because, like, I don't know if that's a thing that Luce's mom knows yet. Okay. Um, I would like to be able to see, you know, the demon realm and the human realm kind of more or less coexist i don't know i'm like i i don't want to speculate too much because then i'm gonna like is this how i want it to be probably not um and i don't want to get disappointed by it but i also follow a ton of very very talented artists on instagram who like write comics and draw comics around you know Owl House and Mm She-Ra and so there's a lot of like comics where they're like oh um this is what 
this future event could look like or um Luce's mom and Ida who's Luce's parental figure in the demon realm them meeting for the first time and what would that look like and this that and the other and it's just like it's not only exciting to see mainstream media like Netflix and Disney create queer content it's also just like the seeing this community of folks like getting really into it Mm. and spinning off their own stuff and it's like so inspiring and cool to see Mm. and like every time I scroll through Instagram I'm like bombarded with these comics and I'm like these are so cute and Mm. they fill me with warm fuzzies while I'm waiting for more canon content (laughs) so to wrap up is there any final thoughts words of wisdom additional praise you'd like to give to bookend your (laughs) expression of joy around queer animation um if you haven't watched she-ra or owl house definitely check it out if animation tv shows aren't your jam you should definitely check out mitchell's versus the machines which is also on netflix and it's a movie and it's quirky and queer too um there's so much animated content out there that i don't think i realized existed Mm. until we're trapped at home and scrambling to find stuff on netflix and all of our streaming stuff and i think we've watched pretty much all of the animation content that is available and we just keep watching more and more as it comes out um and i think there is current the a lot of the animators who work at disney are like currently going through contract negotiations so like Mm. supporting them in that because they're underappreciated and overworked as are we all (laughs) snaps for that (laughs) um but yeah i think snaps to all the creators who are making awesome stuff and making what our kids see much more open and accepting and healthy (laughs) than what we may have like consumed as kids Mm -hmm. so it's it's exciting appreciate you fam sharing about your tv shows (laughs) yeah my like tv show obsessions and it was kind of funny um I guess one last little bookend. The other thing that I really appreciate of a lot of these animated series that are coming out is um, they have a story arc and the creators are sticking to the story arc. When she ended, it ended at the appropriate time. But damn, do I wish there was more. And now for something completely different. I talked with Chaotic Aries' Robert Alberts about how to come together during collective grief and other lessons they've learned through loss. The Small Bite series, we're talking about joy and we're also talking about um, extracting lessons from this year and a combination of both. So for you, could you share one of the things that taught you some deep and meaningful lessons this year? Yeah. 
Um, I think one of the things that happened this year is that I lost my grandma. Um, I don't know, maybe, is it three months ago now? Four months ago? I don't know well, when so August was. Than that. But it was one of those uh, pieces where, um, you know, I got a phone call as I was, oh my God, it was July because I was moving here. Wild, absolutely wild. Anyways, um, I got a phone call from my dad um, and my dad was like, hey, your grandma's really sick. And I remember being like, okay, like, what does that mean? Like, my grandma's like 82 years old, like really sick or like old. Like, what is that? Like quantify this for me, my guy. Um, and so he was like, she's not doing well. You know, like I'm flying down there. Your uncle's down there already. And I just remember my heart like speeding up being like, oh my God, is this, is this it? He called me back a few hours later. He's like, we need to book you a flight. Like you need to come, you need to come say goodbye. Like this is, this is the time to do that. You know, it was, it was one of those moments where like, I've lost people before. So, you know, my first year of grad school, I lost my aunt, but like, this feels different. Mm -hmm. Um, It feels really, really different. And so, um, you know, saying goodbye to someone and then being able to say goodbye to someone, especially her is like something I'll cherish forever because not everyone is blessed enough to do that. Right. Not everyone is afforded that opportunity and more so she got to decide what the end looked like for her which again, you know, not everyone is blessed enough for, for making decisions on that. And so, um, you know, I think tying right back into this theme of like joy and lessons learned, you know, even though it's hard saying goodbye to someone, there's some, there's some comfort that I think you can take in being able to make an intentional trip to say goodbye and knowing that they get autonomy and decision-making and what that looks like for them at the end, mm-hmm. um, knowing that they've got power behind that, right? They have the ability to control um, those pieces when, when so many folks don't have that. So, yeah, I think that's, I mean, that's the biggest context for me of where to start. Yeah, definitely. Um, you, you kind of mentioned, right. That like, it's not that this is the first loss you've experienced by any means, but that this one holds particular weight. This one has particular impact. Like what, what is it about losing your grandma, right. That has, um, landed the way that it is for you. I think, um, you know, when I was growing up before I was like eight or nine, my dad got remarried when I was like eight or nine um, and I got older siblings, which was great. Um, and up until then I was the oldest grandkid. Right. And so I was named after my grandfather. I was named after his brother um, and I was the first one. And so I spent, I mean, I spent a lot of time um, being the only grandkid for a little bit, um, which meant that like, I got to go to grandma's house all the time and grandma spent extra time with me. And we baked cookies and, you know, we did other things. The story my grandma used to love to tell is that, you know, my grandma had a heart attack when I was around five or six and I'm the one who found her um, passed out. And she, it was one of those things where she's like, if you weren't, if you didn't come looking for me, if you didn't find me, like I wouldn't, I wouldn't have made that. And so I think there's that other piece there of like, you know, when I was born, I was born 10 weeks early um, and they weren't sure if I was going to make it, but my grandma stood right by my incubator for weeks, taking pictures and being there. And so it really kind of felt full circle that I didn't realize until I started talking about it now Damn. that, you know, there was, there was that special bond there. And so I think for me, the loss is heavier um, only because I don't know, I think losing a grandparent is so different, right? Like <clears throat> I couldn't imagine losing another, another family member, another aunt, um, which I did recently, you know, on Thanksgiving day, I lost, yeah. I lost an, an aunt. But, you know, losing someone like that, um, it's hard, especially because, you know, my dad would drop me off for weekends. And so I think, you know, to, to make a, a short, uh, long story short, you know, we just, we spent a lot of time together um, and a lot of opportunities. And I think that time really provided a lot of cool memories, but I think it also meant that there was, I'm 
cognizant of how much is now missing. Right. Just a whole lot of just not just a person missing the kind of experiential pieces of yourself that then go with that. Something, something we talked about in prep for this, right, is that like, you know, I'd shared with you that I've known a handful of queer folks in kind of their late 20s or early 30s who've lost grandparents, right? And that I've witnessed that loss mean monumental things for, for the folks, you know, yourself included in my list of folks whom I've known. And that <clears throat> for the folks who've lost grandparents, like those relationships were pivotal in place of some really complicated relationships with parents. And we also talked about how like, in the absence of queer elders, um, that you're looking for possibility models and folks who have lived a certain amount of life and for you, right? Like that is grandma. Um, And like, what, what else, like, what about that rings true for you? Yeah. I mean, you know, I think my maternal birth giver was and is a trash human um, in this world. And so I think grandma, you know, before my dad remarried, you know, my grandma really fulfilled a lot of those maternal roles, which I think adds some additional complexity. But I think, I think it's hard because when you're a queer person, bonds look really different, right? Mm. I think, you know, we talk about parenting and not to go too far, you know, a lot of, a lot of my education has been around, you know, counseling and, and, and relationship building. Right. And so, you know, we talk a lot about, you know, when someone gets old enough to be a grandparent, they, they don't parent anymore right they're they're there for all the fun stuff Mm -hmm. um especially when they're they're not the primary caregiver right um you know being a primary caregiver changes that dynamic a little bit but you know when when they get to be a grandparent it's just it's so different than them raising children and and then they have all of the experience right of of raising kids you know they get to look back on that in whatever way that looks like um and now that they now they have grandkids right and so it's all of the joy and no, none of the, although that did not apply to my grandmother, she definitely gave me lots of corrections growing <laughs> up of how I should be behaving. Um, but it's, it's one of those things where it's just, it, the relationship is so different because um, it also is like special occasions, right? Like I go to grandma, I went to grandma's house on, on special times. It was, mm. it was a trip. It was, it was a, re- a reward, right? It was yeah. exciting. And I think as, as, as queer people, it's a different kind of love that we get to learn. I would say it's similar to the love of our chosen family. Mm-hmm. You know, you get to build a special bond that is outside of that nuclear home, outside of that, you know, siblings or, um, you know, like parents or, or whatever that looks like. And so um, I think you learn a different style of love and connection. And I think that provides a different path pathway to grief. Mm-hmm. So I think, I think for me, that's, that's the big center of it. And, you know, just what we talked about, like, perspective I got to a chance to meet my great my great grandma who like lived through the great depression oh, wow. um, all the way up to like I don't know 2018 2019 so like she literally saw the great depression and saw like iPhones which like it's just when you put it in your brain like that you're just kind of mm-hmm. like what the fuck mm-hmm. um but like the only reason she couldn't live by herself she lived to like 98 years old and the only reason she couldn't live by herself was because she just like couldn't do steps. Like that was the only, that was literally the only reason. Otherwise she was like completely chill. She could cook and clean and do all that other stuff. But like, you know, when you put that in context and you're learning about just the scope of life, it's, it's fascinating. It's so mm-hmm. fascinating to, to learn about perspective. And when there's no queer elders, you know, there's no perspective on history. It just, it, it, it siphons it down a little bit and gives you like one personal perspective, but it's also connected to people you love and people you care about. So. Absolutely. I'm thinking of something you shared earlier, right? Is like kind of learning some, interesting tidbits about your grandma, you know, after her passing, right? But that like, 
it, in one sense that that's kind of disappointing is that those are things that like you didn't necessarily get to hear from her but can you talk about like why it's actually kind of valuable and interesting that you're finding these things about finding these things out about grandma um, and what some of those things are um, after her passing yeah I think you know my grandma was your very traditional white midwestern woman of like I'm not going to take up too much space I'm not going to be very loud I'm going to be really humble all the time you know I'm, I'm just going to I'm going to exist here, right? Like she grew up in the, in the age of like, my job is to raise children and cook dinner and, and be the housewife. Like that is my role. And, and she was happy with that. She was really, really happy with that, which is why I think she loved her grandkids so much is because it afforded her, you know, a second, a second go around in some instances of that. But, you know, at, I remember at her funeral, um, her sisters um, were like, you know, telling us all this stuff about our grandma and it's still baffling. Like I still can't reconcile the fact that my grandma like grew up on a farm in like a farming family where her <laughs> brothers like went out to farm and like cut shit down and they had like gardens to like grow food and like, like they sewed their clothes. You know what I mean? It's just yeah. like, what? like what, what is this organ? Not running shit? to like, target. Wow. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, but one of the things is um, one of my aunts, you know, talked about how great aunt, I don't know, great cousin aunt removed twice. I don't, I don't really understand how family works, but um, right, exactly. Um, but uh, she explained that like she and my grandma and their other sister went and they're like, we're going to take some dancing classes. And apparently my grandma was just like naturally good at that. And that is something I never would have known. Yeah. Um, I never saw her dance. I never saw her do anything, but like she would go on to shows and like win awards. And like, that was a thing she just like did. Um, and it's one of those things where you like have a friend and they're like, whoops, I'm really good. Like that was, that was her thing. But also she was brilliant, right? Like she was a teacher and she, she became a math teacher, you know? And in that time, a woman teaching high school level math, teaching algebra and calculus and trigonometry, like and not only that, but like being, being a national merit scholar, like doing those things, like it's just baffling to me. Like I never would have expected her. It's not that I wouldn't have expected it. She just wasn't boastful enough mm. to say any of that. And so you get this whole new dimension of this woman of like, what? Like yeah. I have, um, she used, she used to sew quilts. I have a hand sewn quilt from her. And like, when I say hand sewn, like she would literally hand stitch her quilts, which like until she got arthritis so bad, she couldn't do that. Yeah. It's one of those things where you're like, what in the world? And so um, it's just one of those things of like, you know, we know that our parents, our grandparents are complex humans, but you started learning from them about other people. And you're just like, mm -hmm. this is incredible. Like, mm -hmm. I wish, I wish I could have known this sooner because I think that it would have meant so much more coming from her. And to that point, right. You shared that, you know, maybe these are things you wished you could have asked grandma about, or, you know, there might be things you wished you'd asked grandma about before, um, you know, before her passing, but like, she probably, she may not have told you, or she wouldn't have told yeah. you from a vantage point that other people might be sharing in this very like glorifying way, this very like praise filled way. So mm -hmm. um, yeah, you're getting elements of grandma from other people who then get to like carry on sentiments about yeah. grandma and who she was as a person to kind of continue her legacy and kind of hold her energy in in the context of who she was in ways yeah. that you, you know you can't get directly from her but like there's still these opportunities to learn more about her and understand who she was as a person and there's also like these deep buried memories like it wasn't until her funeral that I remember so I was like I don't know seven or something and it was one of the last like Thanksgivings they had at their at grandma's house before my family took over hosting them 
Um, but I sat next to grandma because of course I did. And we were hungry and grandma was like, do you want it? So my family is really Irish and very Catholic and very religious. So we all had to sit down and wait until everyone could pray together before we could eat. And grandma was like, do you want to know a prayer that will get us to eat faster? And I was like, yeah. She's like, all right, good bread, good meat, good Lord, let's eat. <laughs> and of course I said that so loud. And my father whipped around and was like, who taught you that? And my grandma just sat there laughing. I'm so sorry. I didn't know that would happen. And it's just like, I say that to people and they were like, your grandmother taught that to you? Like the woman who went to church like twice a week, um, you know, would go on Sunday morning and then would go with my grandfather when he woke up and would go to Bible study. Like she's the one who taught you that? And I was like, yes, yes, she did. So it's also cool to be able to contribute those things too, because it's like, oh yeah, there's a, there's a different side to grandma that you guys did not see. Sometimes it's just time to eat and God will understand. (laughs) 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 I'm assuming maybe I'm not the one to make that assertion. So let's pivot a little bit, I guess, right. Mm -hmm. In thinking about, you know, again, we're talking about this because you have experienced an individualized, very specific and close and important loss in your life right and it's also within the context of this larger pandemic where collectively the entire planet right is experiencing elements of grief much of which in many ways probably hasn't been contended with and in many ways we probably as like a society won't know how to contend with I think I remember tweeting that like there's not enough Yankee candles and therapy in the world to really even start to like address what's going on here. Yeah, no, like just, we're not going to self-care our way out of like the grit of this. And so for you, you know, thinking about this larger context, but also what you've experienced just in these past handful of months with your um, specific loss, right? Like what is your perspective on grief and like what, what wisdom do you have in this moment for like not to be overwhelmed with it? I think, you know, this is a perfect time to talk about Romeo. You know, I wanted to bring up Romeo Jackson um, and like their, their grief process, because I think, you know, when they were, when they were grieving, it was really, really difficult for me to fully empathize, empathize with them because I had also lost um, someone as well. um, uh, Like around that time. Um, and I was like, I, how is this so heavy for you? What is this, what does this look like? And, and, you know, immediately after I lost my grandma, there was this moment of like, oh, I know, I know all, I understand Romeo's tweets now, mm-hmm. like not in the same way, like their, their relationship with their grandmother was, was fundamentally different. Right. But it was just, it was one of those ways where I think they really designed a path that spoke to me about what grief looks like. And even, even still, you know, there's an occasional tweet or two um, that I see from them about, about, you know, um, different aspects of grief, even, you know, around the holidays, around other important days. Um, and so like, uh, I think there's some honor and some appreciation there of like a lot, having them be able to show what it looks like to be able to, and, you know, Romeo and I actually grew up like maybe 30 minutes from each other, maybe sure. 45 minutes from each other. Um, and so there's like this also shared, like growing up experience, um, and, and knowing each other in some capacity. And so I think number one, you know, I, they really, demonstrated to me and allowed me a path of being okay with sitting with those big emotions and and naming Mm -hmm. them. I think the other thing, you know, the analogy I use, which isn't completely flushed out, but you know, the analogy I used um, a while ago is, you know, grief feels like a beach to me. You know, there are some days where you're sitting in the sun and you've got your feet just kind of right there in the water and, and it feels good. And like, yeah, it's not ideal. Yeah. You can't go swimming right now, but 
you're there and it, it doesn't it doesn't take away. And then there are some days where you feel like you're stuck at the beach and all mm-hmm. of your clothes are wet, you've got sand in your shoes, the water is too cold and and you're just stuck there. And and you're going to have both of those days and I think when we talk about the pandemic and we talk about grief uh, as well as other loss that's happened, I think, you know, everyone's beach is going to look different. Mm-hmm. Um, we were talking a little bit earlier about like, you know, some people have broken glass and rocks and trash and, and things on their beach that just either make it difficult to navigate or mm-hmm. scary to go one way or another, um, which impacts, you know, the way that they engage with their beach, where they engage with their grief. Um, and other folks, you know, maybe don't have anything on their beach. Maybe this is the first time or this is the first thing. And so, you know, maybe they're not sure um, how to move or they're they're not experiencing it in the same way. And so I think recognizing that, you know, we've all got this limited amount of land um, that borders this body of water and, and it's all going to look different. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't mean I can't understand what it's like to be on a beach, even if I don't know what it's like to be on yours. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think holding that and being okay with being on a beach is, is the first part. Um, and, you know, grief culturally um, looks different for everyone, right? The, the passing of someone into whatever comes next is, is so different. And um, I, I think there's this collective, like, how do we mourn millions of people, yeah. especially people we've never met or right. will never meet or will never know? And what do we do with that? Right. Because I think there's there's also this question of responsibility. We feel responsible for celebrating and recognizing people from our personal lives um, because they meant something to us. How do we recognize meaning from all of these people we won't get to and never knew? Yeah. Um, so it's, it's heavy. And, and I think being okay with it being heavy and being okay with sitting on your beach sometimes and not knowing how you're going to get the sand out of your shoes or how you're going to dry yourself off, but you know, you're there. Yeah. Um, it's, it sounds like what, um, a certain call to everyone could be right is a, you know, we have to be willing to kind of discuss what our experiences are with our different, um, experiences with grief, right. If folks have these substantive experiences with personal types of grief, or they've, you know, encountered an experience that, which like is technically everybody, but like some folks, you know, have gone through it in ways that others have not. Um, you know, just being willing to like share and like skill share around, like, here's what I've come to understand. Here's what I've learned. Like this conversation itself, right. Just like being able to be articulate about like being willing to articulate, I should say, right. Like, here's what's up. Like, here's what I'm experiencing. This is the ebb and flow of it. Here's kind of the, the shifting and change of it. Right. Like, you know, you naming that just witnessing someone put out tweets about just like, here's what I'm reflecting on. Here's what I'm thinking about. Here's the days that are hard. Here's the days that are great. Here's what I'm going to claim and name about this like very important person. Um, and then what I'm also thinking about B uh, is that like you know, marginalized folks broadly, but especially like queer and trans folks, like we have a certain skill set in this that like a lot of communities don't necessarily have, right? Like we come to understand the names of people we wouldn't know otherwise because of anti-trans violence, um, racialized anti-trans violence, you know, anti-queer violence, right? Like we've come to exist in a world where like there are people we know through that like violent reality. And so I think that being willing to continue to pursue a path where we're giving people their roses before they, you know, pass on from this life 
you know, is something that like queer folks are pretty well versed in. And we're also not being deferred to through this, you know, global pandemic, as far as what a culture of care looks like, or what showing, you know, true compassion looks like, or kind of building mutual aid, you know, projects around how do we take care of each other, because it's just so counter to what like, society's default is going to be in times of treachery and the version of treachery in this moment is collective grief. When we talk about grief, I think we also are talking about love and care. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in my day-to-day work, right, I, I work with survivors um, and there's a necessity to insert your own love and care as they go through grief, right, and helping them navigate, helping them navigate grief in all kinds of ways and then sitting with your own, Um, and, and I think for me, I I made a huge move, you know, I moved, I left my entire job and industry completely behind, Mm -hmm. um, because I moved to a place where I have some of the most important people in my life within fingertips, right. Within four or six hours, um, at the very most. And so, you know, it's one of those things where it's like, I was drowning and I could feel myself drowning Mm -hmm. constantly. And I reached for a life raft and I, I reached for the people that I knew loved and cared and supported me. And I think it's about recognizing those people and the place they have in their lives vocally, right? Tangibly, um, intentionally, more than we ever have before, because we know that our friends care about us and we know that we have an important place um, in their lives and, and them and ours. But I don't want to learn about you know, my friends being champion dancers from someone else down yeah. the road. I, I want to sit with them and hear that. Yeah. You know, like I, I don't want to wait until I'm hearing about a sibling being killed, um, you know, queer trans sibling being killed or, or passing away and feeling a loss of another family member before mm-hmm. I, I get a chance to meet them. Yeah. And so I think, you know, as I get closer and closer to 30, I get closer and closer to this space of like, you know, I feel this deep connection of like, wow, like I may not be their parent, but I know what it feels like to see a younger sibling or someone that mm-hmm. I could parent in some way. And so it, it feels different because um, it's a different connection. You know, I'm not going to be the same person at 18 years old, but, you know, 18 years old was like almost 12 years ago now, which feels wild, uh-huh. absolutely wild to say out loud. Um and so it's, it's a different relationship. Cause like I'm 12 years older, which like you're, you're a tiny little nugget to me and like, not in a condescending way, but like, I have so much love and care because I know what it was like to be 18 Absolutely. and be excited about the world. And I want to cultivate that. And I want to, <laughs> I want to like hug you and like embrace you because, you know, I, I wish I could do some of the things that you get to now, um, depending on the space that you're in. And I'm so joyful that you get that. I'm so joyful to get to learn about you and love you and care about you um, in ways that maybe I wasn't allowed to have people like that because of systems or because of where I grew up or because what was available. And so it just, there's this innate want to love and care even more about people, Um, you know? And I think that goes back to that collective care. It goes back to our chosen families and our biological families and, and everyone, you know, how are we loving and caring about people in ways that you know, demonstrate that.
Earlier this season in our Queer Death and Aging episode, I talked about this phenomenon I encountered called bear soup, which is when too many daddies get into the pool at the same time without letting their suntan lotion absorb into their skin. I'm on the mic again with executive director Justin Drenke as they share their positive experiences at a queer campground and how the gay outdoors can be a pathway for a meaningful relationship with both people and nature. This is kind of a follow-up to, um, if folks have been listening for a while, something that you've brought up before and have talked about in other contexts, but we're talking about joy today and you very much wanted to um, bring up something that has brought you a lot of joy and Mm -hmm. taught you some lessons. So what is that uh, for you? Yeah, so I want to talk about the wonderful world of gay campgrounds mm-hmm. and um you had an, ex- an opportunity to to join me on an excursion I sure did <laughs> <laughs> to camp it outdoor resort in Saugatuck, michigan so what i want to talk about today right the prompt is what has brought you joy in in 2021 and the thing that has not only brought me joy, but also I think kept me connected to community and mm. helped me survive the pandemic has been going to the gay campground in Saugatuck, Michigan and enjoying the outdoor gathering spaces in queer community. Right, yeah, I know a lot of our virtual meetings, um, you'd hop on and you were in <laughs> your camper and I'm like, I am so jealous, um, even though I was working from home, which was, in my opinion, better than being forced to be in the office. Um, so clearly you took advantage of being in that space as much as possible when you could get there. Yeah, I think that you know one of the things that was really hard when the pandemic first started was um, a, the uncertainty of what was going on, right? I think if I look back at the the naivete that we all had at the beginning and everybody was like, we're going to close down for three weeks and then we'll be back. Well, LOL. here we are a year and nine months later. <laughs> but like, I think about the, the uncertainty at the beginning of the pandemic and how we didn't really know a lot about the virus that causes COVID, right? We, right. we didn't have a lot of understanding of how it was um, transmitted. Right. We, everybody was sanitizing their groceries and, you know, Clorox wipes were out of stock and toilet paper was out of stock and we didn't know what was going on. Right. But then as we started to learn more, um, it became pretty evident that like the primary mode of transmission of, of COVID is not surfaces, right? It's in the air, right? It's, it's airborne transmission. Right, and right. we learned a lot about the difference of indoor air quality versus outdoor air quality and, and how much that impacted transmission. And so it, it became pretty clear that like outdoor gatherings were definitely a safer alternative to to indoor gatherings Mm -hmm. um, in the times of COVID, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so I just think a lot back to the, you know, the beginning of the pandemic and just being in my house for weeks on end where every day kind of felt exactly the same. And like, we were working from home, but like also nobody really knew how to work from home yet because that just wasn't an experience, (laughs) right? And so my partner and I came across an opportunity to purchase a travel trailer uh, and and keep it at the the campground. So it became a second home. We leased the space and it was a place to go to that was still ours, right? We could isolate in in the trailer if we needed to, but it provided a change of scenery that was was so important after nonstop same experience Mm -hmm. in, in the house, right? And that was really important. But what I discovered throughout 2021 was that 
it, it wasn't just the change of scenery that was so important to me. It was also about being in community with mm. other queer people mm -hmm. um, and the, the value that that brings instead of just engaging with, with my coworkers who, you know, don't have that same experience. Right. Let's take it this way. Right. So like, again, most of the spaces that we understand mm -hmm. as queer community spaces are predicated on maybe educational spaces, gathering spaces indoors. Um, so then when you, right, like when you invited us to your campground in September for a retreat, right, I was just like, what am I getting into? Because there's kind of this uh, um, discord, I think, for a lot of queer folks around like access or understanding of how to be queer and in outdoor spaces, which I think is another limitation in thinking about how do you build queer community under the limitations and restrictions and confines of a global pandemic. Um, and I think that that space also is its own model of like, you can build queer community, you can give folks access to outdoor spaces, right? Like, I don't know what I was expecting, but it was less rustic um, than I may have anticipated for a gay campground. Yeah. You know, what that brings up for me too, is that we didn't necessarily have the, the mental model for what that could look like, right? I was terrified before I went to that campground for the first time, right? Okay. Um, I had heard about this campground for years and years and years before I ever decided to go. Okay. Um, and it was one of our, our colleagues at the Institute, Andy, uh, who kind of helped me overcome that fear of going. One year we were just like, what's going on for Labor Day? And we decided to meet in the middle because Andy's in Chicago, I'm in Lansing and Sagatuck was kind of right in the middle. And we went there for Labor Day. And I was like, you know what? Andy has this experience of going camping with their family. I don't have any experience of going camping besides like one time in an RV to a KOA campground for my stepdad's family <laughs> reunion, right? Very specific uh, idea of, of camping and, and wilderness, right? So I didn't have anything to like model that off of. And so I was terrified to go because I was like, I don't know how to exist in wilderness, right? I don't know how to do this, <laughs> right? And there's not like media showing us how to no. do that, right? So like part of it is a limitation on like, how are queer people shown to exist in media, right? That's a whole separate conversation. But the first time I went, I was like, oh my God, this is nothing like what I feared it would be, right? Mm -hmm. There was way more amenities than I expected there to be, right? But also just like the immediate sense of community that I felt in that space, right? Like it was a totally different environment. I wasn't used to sleeping in a tent, but that didn't matter because yeah. of the people that were there, right? Being surrounded by hundreds of other queer people in, in that space helped me understand that like, yeah, this is something that I, that I can do. And this is an experience that I can have. Mm -hmm. It's not just about going to, you know, some state park in the middle of nowhere, right? Mm -hmm. There are places where you can be with other queer people and also experience nature. Mm -hmm. And so that was a really powerful experience. And I, I was really sad leaving because I was really sad to leave that, that sense of community because I was mm -hmm. going back into a cis heteronormative world. Mm -hmm. um, and so being able to have the opportunity and the privilege to be able to go to that space regularly now, right? Means that I get to exist in spaces that are not cis heteronormative, right. um, that embrace and affirm queer identity because it's built by queer people and for queer people. You know, I think what what I think is valuable about it too is that when it's not borrowed space, right? Like you're leasing that space and like you get to come back and you get to decorate it how you want and you kind of get to, to craft it in your own way. And it's within this larger ecosystem of folks doing the same thing. 
and I remember like kind of we did a, a tour, if you will, kind of walking through the different areas of the quite sizable like campground. I was very surprised at the size of it. Um, and just, I feel like everybody's little section was its own welcome mat of just folks like, you know, nodding, cheersing, stopping to talk, doing whatever. There was just a lot going on, but it also felt like you could choose your own adventure. You could be really interactive with people um, if you needed that. And you could also kind of recluse to your own little space, which is, it just kind of feels like this like queer futuristic like neighborhood model that I feel like we should aspire for that just like, oh, everybody in your ecosystem is queer and you can go knock on their door and ask for you know, sugar or J-Lube or whatever you need. <laughs> I feel like the campground is just like a vegetable patch away from being like the perfect queer commune. It is like that. It's exactly <laughs> it. So um, I think that's the model. That is the model. So, I mean, there's obviously some really amazing things about the campground that you lease at um, and just the the community that you've built there. And I'm sure there's plenty of campgrounds. I'd like to believe, I guess I don't know, right? But I'm sure there's other spaces similar to this, outdoor spaces um, or experiences that folks have crafted, especially during the pandemic that offer the same rewarding, meaningful experience. But you also have some examples of outdoor spaces that are the exact opposite of that. And I'm devastated to hear that. Yeah. The uh, world of gay camping is is not without controversy, right? Mm -hmm. The queer community is not a monolith and, and gay campgrounds follow that same path, right? So, you know, there's a couple of different gay campgrounds in Michigan, right? And I'll make that Emphasis. distinction that like yeah. it is, they are, there are additional gay campgrounds. Um, and I say that because they are men's only spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, they exist, right? And and there are certain groups of, of gay men that want to go to that space. Yeah. So early in, in 2021, there was kind of a, a pretty big controversy that erupted around one of the campgrounds um, in Michigan. That kind of started it at like Michigan level news, but then it kind of bubbled up to like Out Magazine was writing about it and, you know, mm-hmm. other national gay media was starting to write about Camp Boomerang. And, you know, the, the news broke in February of 2021 that Camp Boomerang, which is a, a men's only campground, would not admit trans men to the campground. And so, you know, the owners of the campground took a position that the only people that they would admit to the campground um, were people who were assigned male at birth, um, and they did not perceive trans men to be men, which is wrong, period, point blank. Um, But that's the position that they took. And so it erupted pretty quickly. A lot of people were outraged about that. Um, There was a lot of news media coverage about it. And they kind of just dug themselves deeper into that position and they lost a lot of potential revenue from that. Good. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. Uh, A lot of the people that I'm really close with now at Campit came over to Campit in in May because they had originally signed on to be seasonals at this other campground. Then all of the politic came out Mm -hmm. and they said, nope, that's not the space that I want to support, which Mm -hmm. is great, right? And so they came over to Campit, which is, you know, open to anyone. Um, it's, it's not, you know, a single gender campground, like some of the other queer campgrounds are here, here in Michigan. And I think that those spaces, right, are a reflection of, you know, some of the larger politics that we need to contend with, within, within the queer and trans community that, you know, there are ongoing conversations that we need to have about not only supporting, but embracing and affirming and uplifting trans people and not deferring to cis white gays as the definition of what it means to be queer. 
hundred percent. And I just, I think I, I think what's frustrating, and this is me thinking out loud as I say it, right. Is that like, you know, we've talked about some of the misconceptions or the complexities of like Midwest geography and that it's often written off as either very red, very like conservative or just like this rural kind of flyover area. And then you have this campground, right? Which I think is intricately tied, right? Like rurality and like outdoor spaces and outdoor experiences being exclusive in a in a really violent way that kind of sets a bad example for like instances where with camp it as a as a redeeming example right are instances where you can experience rurality and like being removed from like urban epicenters without having to interact with like conservative policy um, or conservative politic I should say I feel like an instance like that where you have a campground you have queer folks gay folks emphasis on gay folks, creating restrictions and gatekeeping who can interact, right? Just creates more restrictions on who can participate in outdoor spaces, who can participate in queer Midwest spaces. And like, that's not, that's totally counter to what, what we should be doing. And I think that like, there's, there's a larger context that I think is important to name too, right? That, that camp at, um, is about six miles south of, of downtown Saugatuck, Michigan, which for folks listening who may not be familiar, Saugatuck, Michigan is often referred to as the gay capital of the Midwest. And part of why that is, Saugatuck, you know, on the on the coast of, of Lake Michigan, was founded as an artist commune. Artists from Chicago would take the two-hour trip up the coast to Saugatuck, and it became this little arts community, right? And I don't think we talk enough about the importance of art in shaping queer identity and in, you know, shaping our cultural understanding of identity without that, that history of artists coming to Michigan to establish this little commune, right? You know, the environment in that area of the state would probably be totally different, right? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, in that six mile drive from downtown Saugatuck, where there are rainbow flags everywhere, to the campground, where there are also rainbow flags everywhere, you know, you also pass Trump flags and other you know, ephemera that indicate that like, not everything is sunshine and rainbows there, but you have a, you have a critical mass of queer people and people who support queer people to make that space feel safe and welcoming for anybody who wants to come there, right? And so it's, it's pretty incredible that we get to have this space that queer people can gather outdoors in a, in a space that is safer, at least in the current context of the pandemic, right? In a space that allows all queer people to have a little taste of, of what it means to, you know, experience the wilderness, right? Mm-hmm. Um, where there is infrastructure in place to, to make that easier, right? You know, you can come in with a tent, you can come in with an RV, or you can rent a cabin, right? And there's different levels of um, amenities for, for guests to, you know, experience that in, in whatever flavor of the adventure they want to choose, right? So like, mm-hmm. if you have all your equipment, great, you can set up in the middle of the woods and, you know, have your own little space there. If you have no equipment, you can come and rent a cabin and, you know, be close to other people who, you know, want the fresh air and the woods and the breeze off the lake, but don't have the equipment to, you know, necessarily experience that outside mm-hmm. of this space. This city queer was very impressed. I didn't know that history about Sagatuck. Like, that's very interesting. And just like, again, how the trajectory of art queers into what is now like this very intentionally crafted space. Yeah, I didn't know that. 
As we're wrapping up, is there any final thoughts, words of wisdom, or parting words you would like to add about your joyous experience (laughs) of the gay campground or anything else um, surrounding that and this wild year that has been 2021? You know, I will say that anybody who has any desire to experience wilderness in, in some fashion, right, check out camp it or another gay campground near you, queer campground near you, and think about gathering in in queer-centered spaces in in an outdoor setting, right? I mean, we can continue to to sit at home on our couches and, and watch Netflix, or you can come to camp it and watch a drag queen do an aerial show in the middle of, you know, a field. Um, there are ways that we can gather safely or safer um, in the middle of the pandemic and still experience queer community. Uh, and I think that's how we get through it, right? Um, no person is a monolith. No person can do it alone. We have to rely on community to get through it. Um, and sometimes that means finding ways to gather even when the world is telling us it's not safe to be inside together. Our inbox is open for all of your insight, feedback, questions, boycotts, memes, and other forms of written correspondence. You can contact us at lastbite at sgdinstitute.org. This podcast is made possible by the labor and commitments of the Midwest Institute for Sexuality and Gender Diversity staff. Particular shout out to Justin, Andy, and Nick for all of your support with editing, promotion, and production. Our amazing and queer as fuck cover art was designed by Adrian McCormick. <laughs>